fam. We know with everything going on, journalism may not always feel important until you really need it. Like when states keep passing some nonsense abortion ban or federal courts attempt to block access to life-saving abortion medication, you know, when they're just being jamokes out there. All year, we have kept you informed of every development in the fight for reproductive justice for free. So as a listener of Boom Lawyer, can I ask you a favor? Will you make a donation today to help us keep this going in 2024? Your donations will help keep our coverage free and accessible, like birth control should be, to everyone. Visit www.rewirenewsgroup.com slash donate. Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewire News Group podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that believes trans rights are human rights. And if you don't think so, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to dump a bucket of water on your head. <laughs> I'm Rewire News Group's editor-at-large, Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo, Rewire News Group's executive editor. Rewire News Group is the one and only home for expert repro journalism that inspires you to stand up for trans kids. And the Boom Lawyered podcast is part of that mission. So big thanks to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. So, Amani, I was thinking, and you know what? We have talked so much about administrative law on this podcast lately, right? Like, Yeah, we have. Regulations, mm. rulemaking. Hubba hubba. Some notice and comment. Honey child. Are you acting arbitrary and capricious? Like, it's, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. The minute administrative law comes up, I feel away. So, yeah. I kind of want the collar. You know, it's not a hot flash, it's just the APA. <laughs> Can we put that on some merch? It's not a hot flash, it's just the APA. <laughs> It's been so fun for me and so fulfilling lately, and I kind of want to return the favor. Oh, well, that's nice. I mean, what a, what a kind thing of you to do, but what does that mean, return the favor? Because I'm, 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 I'm a little bit wary. I mean, I, I understand maybe it sounds a little creepy, but I promise you it's not. I think okay. we should spend some time talking about levels of constitutional review and trans rights, because... I think it's an issue that SCOTUS is going to weigh in on sooner rather than later. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's all the reaction you need, right? Exactly. Right? We are going to do it because in November, advocates from the ACLU urged the Supreme Court to take up a pair of trans right cases out of Tennessee and Kentucky. Both cases involve bans on gender-affirming care for minors and argue that such bans violate, get this, Imani, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Woo, that's some sexy business. Like, we're, <laughs> we're going straight for Equal Protection Clause claims right yeah, now? Yeah, absolutely. Somebody get me a fan. <laughs> it gets better, though. Both cases also seek to assert the constitutional rights of the parents of trans kids, to direct their children's care and upbringing. And thanks to some recent action by the Biden administration, both cases could be the first major test of trans rights to land before the Supreme Court since the 2019 decisions in the Bostock and Harris cases. 
Well, that's freaking exciting. I mean, you know how much I love talking about levels of judicial scrutiny. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode, right? Right. Just, whew, what levels of constitutional scrutiny apply when courts evaluate a gender-affirming care ban? Do the parents of trans kids have the same rights as the parents of cis kids wanting to block their access to birth control? These are open questions. Dear listeners, the Supreme Court could soon answer these questions in a case called LWV Scrimetti. Hey, give me a pound of Scrimetti and a calzone. <laughs> a sliced real thin like. <laughs> I need some Scrimetti sliced real thin and put it on a nice, put it on a nice piece of bread with some lettuce and tomato and some many little oregano, little pepper. Give me a chop Ooh, on that. Scrimetti. <laughs> So LWV Scrimetti, out of the Sixth Circuit, this is the case to watch on trans rights now. So let's get into it, shall yeah. we? What do you think? Mm -hmm. All right. Back in November, advocates from the ACLU filed a petition with the Supreme Court asking it to take up a case out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that allowed Tennessee's ban on gender-affirming care for trans kids to take effect. And this is a case that we've covered before on the podcast, and it is wild. That decision led by Bush appointee Jeffrey Sutton, broke what had been consensus by the federal courts that gender-affirming care bans are unconstitutional. That reminds me of what we used to sing before the Dobbs days. Do you remember our ditty before Dobbs? I do remember our, our pre-Dobbs ditty. <laughs> Pre-viability abortion bans are unconstitutional. So now we're going with gender-affirming care bans. <laughs> Not again, gender affirming care abortion bans. That doesn't work. <laughs> gender affirming care bans are unconstitutional. Yeah, that's our new ditty for 2024, baby. Oh, so yeah. So this was the first decision to let any gender affirming care ban take effect. And it started a domino effect where courts out of Kentucky and later the 11th Circuit and Alabama would later follow along. It also shifted the legal landscape significantly because before Sutton's decision, courts were applying a heightened level of constitutional scrutiny to gender-affirming care bans because they discriminate on the basis of sex or transgender status because, guess what? They do. They do. They do. Mm -hmm. Sutton's decision was, to, was the first to say these kinds of bans should be subject to rational basis review. This is the most deferential level of review a court can give a law. We've talked about it on the podcast before. It's basically, fuck it, the government always wins. And that's a ridiculous proposition when it comes to transgender people in this country, right? Right. And the ongoing siege genocide that is, being, that is targeting them, right? So let me just let me just go into a discussion about suspect classes Ooh, and, and the like. I told you we were dishing you know, this up just for you, I'm Imani. Just, just gonna unzip my hoodie just a little bit and get real comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the ladies out okay. for the Constitution. Exactly. <laughs> so generally, laws target targeting suspect classes, and these aren't classes that are suspicious. But these are classes that make up what's called a discrete and insular minority, right? They're a group of people who don't have a whole lot of political power. They're a group of people that are not large in numbers such that they have the numbers to sort of get out into the political marketplace and say, hey, man, please stop passing laws that discriminate against us, right? So the trick for courts has been trying to determine what level of judicial scrutiny should apply to laws targeting trans people if any level of judicial scrutiny higher than rational basis review should apply. 
Sutton really couldn't be bothered to have a discussion about what level of heightened judicial scrutiny should apply because he doesn't think that trans people constitute a suspect class. He thinks that being transgender is not an immutable trait. When we talk about suspect classes, we talk about traits that are immutable, race, um, gender, those sorts of things. According to Sutton, transgender, um, being transgender is not an immutable trait because you're not born trans. That's what he thinks. Now, just sidebar, you're not born Christian either, but religion is a suspect class. I mean, so, you know, th there's some lovely hypocrisy for you there. But in addition to refusing to apply a heightened level of scrutiny to trans to uh, laws targeting trans people, he managed to reframe the debate. So what Sutton said was, the issue isn't whether or not you can deny puberty blockers to some kids and not trans kids, right? He believes that you can't allow anyone to transition. So in other words, the law does prohibit children assigned female at birth from, for example, receiving testosterone treatments, but it, the law permits children assigned male at birth to receive those very same treatments. In Sutton's view, this isn't an equal protection issue, right? Right. Because a cisgender boy can't transition through the use of testosterone because they're already a cisgender boy. Only estrogen will allow a cisgender boy to transition. So the law just treats everyone the same by not allowing anyone to transition. And this is not a great argument, right? The whole right. point of these law, the whole point of these laws is to prevent trans people from using puberty blockers that will enable them to transition. The law really isn't about saying nobody can transition, right? right? It's definitely an equal protection issue. But even though it's not a great argument, it's a colorable argument, right? Yeah. And and colorable means it's a legal term of art that essentially means it passes the smell test. Mm -hmm. And because, as you said, Sutton is a George W. Bush appointee, he has a level of respect among conservative jurists yep. that, say, a Matthew Kaczmarek does not have. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And even so, in his opinion, he was like, I might be wrong here, but this is how we're going to go about applying the law. So that sort of feigned deferentialism also, I think, probably played in his favor. Because look, Amani, he's just being reasonable, right? He's even admitted maybe he's wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't know. Right. And also, he, you know, he wants to talk about how we really can't, we can't decide these constitutional questions we're in a democracy and there are states that are having robust discussions about these issues. And those issues are grounded in concern about science and concerns about, quote, you know, whether or not these puberty blockers are irreversibly damaging children. This isn't about animus. It's just a healthy debate about medical care, which is obviously nonsense. But because he has this thin veneer of respectability, his arguments are enough to sway other conservative judges who are now using it as cover, as you said. Yeah. So do we really want the Supreme Court to weigh in on this now? Or should we just let the public marketplace of ideas decide whether or not trans people should have rights. I mean, first of all, no, on terms of the public marketplace of ideas, obviously, <laughs> right? Like, Fuck the public marketplace <laughs> of ideas. I mean, you know, generally speaking, we don't um, leave people's humanity up to popular vote is something that I feel pretty strongly about. But this question about whether or not we want the Supreme Court to step in to gender affirming care bans like this Supreme Court, this fucking court, 
right? Like These fucking guys. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, man. It is it is dicey. And I got to say, I have so much empathy for folks who are litigators and representing clients in this climate right now because the federal judiciary is not your friend. And it's not even like an objectively fair fight like it had been in some cases. It is absolutely stacked now. And so what's a litigator to do? I don't have a great answer because you can't just quit, right? Like, I mean, if this, if the institutions matter, then, then those are the forums we fight. And so I don't think it's a clean answer, but you know, Chris Geithner interviewed ACLU attorney Chase Strangio in his law dork newsletter. And if you don't subscribe to Chris's uh, newsletter, you really should. He has been crushing it, especially on all the attacks uh, um, on LGBTQ folks. Like really, truly, he's doing great work here. Anyway, so Chris interviewed Chase, who has been litigating many of these cases. Chase has been on the podcast before, friend of the pod. And Chase makes a really compelling case for why, even with this court, even with these fucking guys, advocates are asking for an intervention. And so this is what Chase said. And I I think it's really, it's pretty powerful. One, this is a crisis and it's getting worse, not better. And two, this is an issue that is going to reach the court multiple times in the near future, whether they take our case or not. So we are going to the Supreme Court because the Sixth Circuit opinion was catastrophically wrong as a doctrinal matter and as a moral matter. So really, you know, people like Chase and other attorneys that are litigating these issues are between a rock and a hard place Mm -hmm. because they probably know deep down that they're not likely to win this case at the Supreme Court, right? And yeah. so by challenging this case now, you're taking a a rubric that has really been confined to Tennessee and Kentucky for now and potentially making it so that all the other states that are trans hostile can start passing these laws if the Supreme Court weighs in at, his, at it is likely to do and say, oh, well, the evidence doesn't support that puberty blockers are safe and we're mutilating children and yada, yada, yada. So- we're going to say that these gender affirming care bans are, un- are, are, are constitutional, excuse me. So that sets the stage for other people to pass these, pass these sorts of bans. So is Chase concerned about this case fomenting a larger, more widespread targeted attack on trans people? And has that come into his calculus as to whether or not the ACLU should litigate this case specifically? I mean, you know, first of all, I think we'd have to ask Chase specifically, but, yeah. you know, in the interview... Uh, He made it very clear that, I mean, part of being an advocate is really seeing your client's case through, right? And they represent the families um, of trans and families of trans kids and trans kids. And because the federal court system is what it is, I mean, you know, abortion advocates eventually started going to state courts. We may see a shift in strategy there. But for right now, you fight for your client. And I think you probably try to do the least amount of harm also in that larger sense. But, you know, I I mean, I just I I don't really I I, you can hear me stuttering all over the place because it's like I just I feel terrible for the advocates who are doing the right thing by their clients. And it feels like they're just going to get a gut punch in return from, you know, Brad Kavanaugh, like. Well, I mean, and hopefully to the extent that they do get this gut punch, you know, the the opinion written by Jackson or Kagan or Sotomayor will provide the basis for a majority opinion in the future once we either expand the courts 
or, you know, figure out a way to make it so that this particular Supreme Court isn't as illegitimate and corrupt as it is. Oh, and Amani, as you've said over and over and over again, not just on this podcast, you've written about this. We need this issue settled, right? Like we really can't have a hodgepodge of let's apply this level of constitutional scrutiny in this circuit and let's apply a different level here. Like we do need some certainty at this point in the game. Right. And, you know, as you said earlier, it's frankly ridiculous to expect courts to analyze laws targeting trans people, laws discriminating against trans people in the delivery of healthcare services to be analyzed using rational basis, which is, as you said, fuck it, the government wins, right? Mm -hmm. Appellate courts have seemed really reluctant to engage in any real analysis about the levels of judicial scrutiny that should apply to transgender people, even though, as I've already said, they obviously fit the mold of a suspect class, mm -hmm. right? The transgender people are discreet and insular minority. They lack political power, as evidenced by this avalanche of legislation targeting and dehumanizing them. Right. And appellate courts have consistently seemed squeamish about stepping in and calling a spade a spade, right? They seem extremely loath to view discrimination against trans people as something in and of itself deserving separate equal protection analysis, right? They would rather, as they did in the Harris case, the Harris Funeral Homes case, mm -hmm. rely on these proscriptions against discrimination on the basis of sex. And while it is true that these laws targeting trans people do discriminate on the basis of sex, right? Because they're about people not conforming to the gender that society has told them they have to conform to, but there is obviously a serious equal protection analysis problem here, and people don't seem to want to address it. For example, when Arkansas, um, when the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down Arkansas's gender affirming care ban, the court dropped the footnote saying that it didn't disagree with the lower court's designation of trans people as a quasi suspect class. But then the court said that there was no need to get into a discussion at all about suspect classes because, quote, we need not rely on it to apply heightened scrutiny because the act also discriminates on the basis of sex. And because it discriminates on the basis of sex, they use intermediate scrutiny. Mm -hmm. But what about the fact that the law discriminates against trans people, qua trans people? Oh, yes, you dropped a qua. qua in a sentence because I love me. I love a qua in the wild. And what that means, <laughs> it's a Latin phrase that basically means discriminating against trans people because they are trans people, not because they are failing to conform to whatever societal um, ideas about gender identity are. Right. Right. These laws may discriminate against them because of sex, but that's not really what's happening here. They're being discriminated against based on animus about who they are as people. Yeah. And you are exactly right. And the federal courts have not really stepped into the issue of seeing trans people as trans people in and of themselves, not, you know, some sort of shifting creature between sexes or whatever. And for good or for bad, they're going to have to address it, right? And this uh, this Department of Justice filing that we mentioned at the upfront really ups the ante here and increases the chances that the court takes this case and hears arguments maybe even as early as this spring. This is what the DOJ brief says. The question whether the recent wave of bans on gender-affirming care are consistent with the Equal Protection Clause is a question of national importance that urgently requires a definitive resolution. So the Department of Justice is saying, yo, boys, get on it, right? Like, And that's good, but it's also giving me a stomachache, I'm going to be very honest. 
I mean, look, the DOJ wants the court to take Scrimetti because it believes the Tennessee ban is both a ban based on sex-based classification mm-hmm. and one that discriminates against trans individuals on the basis of being trans, right? Qua trans. Because that's what it is. It is. Right? And Sutton was just flatly wrong to get the other Federalist Society judges all in a tizzy over rational basis review. Mm-hmm. It simply cannot be that when you tell a trans person they're not allowed to get health care that other people are allowed to get, it cannot be that you don't use some, some level of heightened scrutiny to analyze that law. I refuse to believe that that is proper or legal or constitutional or even common sense. Yeah. But yeah. Jess, okay. I have a question for you, Ms. Yeah. Sandra. Uh. The Biden administration's petition is different from the ACLU's in a really important way, right? Mm-hmm. The Biden administration wants the court to stay the hell out of the parents' rights fight. Why, I ask you, why? What's that all about? I mean, I think partly because the court should probably stay the hell out of the parents' rights fights just generally. I don't see that, like, from a doctrinal level going well. But I do think that, you know, there is some advocacy issues going on here, right, that can explain it. Um, I said the ACLU represents the families of trans kids and trans kids. So their advocacy bound to their clients and though and asserting the rights of the parents in that case is is, you know, normal, expected, like court routine, of course. The Biden administration doesn't represent the families. Right. The Biden administration is here representing the interests of the federal government and having unanimity, unanimity in these kinds of decisions, um, in this kind of, um, you know, um, legal landscape. And so that's where they're coming from. Um, Also, I just think that opening up the parents' rights issue is a whole can of worms that maybe nobody wants to deal with right now when we've got that DeAnda case floating around. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was just about to say, we're looking at sort of parallel tracks here when it comes to parental rights, because on the one hand, in Scrimetti, courts, you know, the Sixth Circuit has said, well, you know, no no parent has the right to, quote, mutilate their child, essentially, right? It's going to be a federal government policy that kids are not allowed to use puberty blockers, irrespective of what their parents want, irrespective of the extremely high suicide rates or attempted suicide rates among trans people and trans kids. We don't, they just don't care about that. And it's just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to understand how that could possibly be not hypocritical when in DeAnda, we have essentially an argument that parents have unilateral, complete control over what their children do, right? Parents, parents, parental authority cannot be subverted by the government, right? Meanwhile, the government wants to subvert parental authority when it comes to parents of trans kids. It can't be both. Right, right. It can't be that your parental rights, right, right, right. I was going to say, it can't be that your parental rights depends on whether or not your children are cis or trans. Right. And it can't, and your parental rights can't depend on whether or not you're Christian, right? Because it's becoming that partisan politics are, are acting as another parent to your kids. If you are a Christian white Republican, then you're set. If you're a radical leftist who wants his, wants their trans kid to get gender affirming care, well, then that's when the state's going to come in and subvert your parental authority. And yeah. the hypocrisy just, it irks me to my core. 
It's, it really does. It really does. And so, you know, what, like talk, thank you, because ta- even just talking through this, it's helps me have even more of an understanding and um, empathy for litigators like Chase, because yes, this is all a risk, right? But what advocates are doing here is so core. You do not fucking concede the fight when the fight has a person's humanity at its core. And that's really what these cases are about. You know, will the courts recognize discrimination against trans folks as legitimately that discrimination against trans folks for being trans, trans qua trans. Right. Right. Or are they going to essentially use junk science to undercut undercut the overwhelming evidence. I mean, even in Sutton's opinion, he has three or four pages about all of the medical evidence and the consensus, but then he goes on to say, it's still up in the air. Who am I to say? Which is, it's just, it's absurd. It's absurd to pretend that this is, is, is a serious question about democracy rather than animus against trans people by legislators claiming they want to protect trans people during committee hearings, but then going on the airwaves and interviews, you know, on Fox news or whatever other right wing conservative radio hosts calling trans people demons. Yeah. I mean, are we going to allow animus against trans people to formulate a constitutional basis for discrimination? I say no. I say no. Fuck that noise. Yeah. Fuck all of that noise. If you would like to fuck that noise with us. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) That's a good segue, right? (laughs) You can find me on X.com at Angry Black Lady. You can find Jess, same place, Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. We're both on Blue Sky. And you should follow Rewire News Group on X on Blue Sky. We're on threads actively and on TikTok because our new TikTok content creator, Christian, was a Beige baby Jesus. Beige baby Jesus, which is such a great name. They have been really crushing it with our new TikTok content. We urge you to go go check it out, like the videos, like the 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 account, and you know, just help help us help you. Really, truly. Help us help, <laughs> help you. Us help you. And what are we gonna do, Jess? We're gonna see you on the tubes, folks. See you on the tubes, folks. Looking for a pod that's the right amount of politics and pettiness? Listen to Hysteria from Crooked Media, hosted by Aaron Ryan and Alyssa Mastro-Monaco. This unapologetically opinionated show offers a fresh take on politics and culture. Say goodbye to the male gaze and hello to smart, real, and refreshing content. And don't worry about the tough news. Hysteria brings the laughs to help you power through the rest of the week. Join them in their squad of hilarious and relatable bi-coastal women every Thursday on your favorite podcast platform. Hold up. 